what you'll hear on Patreon. I don't think, well, I, I think I'm arguing against identity politics, not for identity politics. The way I see it is that identity politics is really kind of re-racializing society, saying that the important thing in society is not what we have in common, uh, or what most people have in common, but is about saying people are divided into these different groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, sexuality. These groups can't be transcended. Uh, and therefore, we have to kind of just try and take resources from the privileged groups to the uh, less privileged groups. I mean, I'm arguing against that kind of framework. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing for Jewish pride or Jews are special. Uh, I'm arguing against anti-Semitism, partly as a way to, uh, as a way of countering identity politics, because I see identity politics as being very, very uh, dangerous and damaging, not to just to Jews, although. It is dangerous to Jews, but to society as a whole. I'm Daniel Benamy. Uh, I run the Radicalism of Fools website, uh, radicalismoffools.com, which is really about rethinking anti-Semitism, uh, because I think it's not really thought about deeply enough. Uh, so it really needs to be reconsidered. And in the past, I've also written a lot about finance and economics, economic growth, uh, those kinds of subjects. This is actually where I know some of your work from. Um, way back when I was, not way back, wasn't that long ago, uh, <laughs> doing my PhD, I uh, came across your work um, on growth skepticism, as you call it. And it was, it really had a massive impact on how I thought about, or how I tried to make sense of the fact that those with a lot of money um, and who had benefited quite a lot from growth seemed to be invested in downplaying its importance. And I, that's something I'd like to come to as we move forward. But could you tell me a little bit about that website? What, what is it all about and what brought you to developing it? Uh, well, the immediate kind of catalyst for it was there was a conflict in May 2021 uh, between Israel and uh, Hamas, the Islamist group, uh, mainly based in Gaza. And I was just really shocked by some of the commentaries, some of the really overtly anti-Semitic commentaries. So, for example, uh, using tropes of Jews as child killers, that kind of thing. And this was often from people who would consider themselves leftists and radicals. It wasn't from kind of uh, extreme right wing people, although obviously they're pretty bad as well. So that was the immediate trigger. But then also when I started looking into it, it seemed to me that a lot of key questions in relation to anti-Semitism weren't really understood. So, for example, the relationship between anti-Semitism and identity politics, uh, the relationship with Islamism, by which I don't mean Islam, but I mean a kind of political movement framed in Islamic language, and even things like the relationship historically between anti-Semitism and Christianity, and then the idea of race and anti-Semitism. Uh, there was an awful lot of confusion about all those kinds of subjects. So I thought, I try and try and rethink it as best I could. On this idea of leftists and radicals sort of spilling over into anti-Semitism, can you give me some examples of what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, obviously the right, and here we're, we're obviously talking about the extreme right, we're not talking about mainstream right-wing people generally, but obviously the, the kind of extreme right are, generally speaking, very explicitly anti-Semitic, but we're talking about a very small group of people here. Uh, whereas with the left, uh, it takes different forms. So it takes, 
uh, a kind of manic hostility to Israel. Mm -hmm. And I emphasize the manic hostility thing because it's not a question of criticizing Israel, criticizing the Israeli government by any normal criteria or Israeli policy by any normal criteria, which I think is fair enough. Uh, but Israel has somehow become a symbol. If you read what they're saying, they talk about Israel not as a real nation state, albeit a flawed one, but as a kind of symbol of apartheid. I mean, that kind of apartheid label is almost uniquely applied to Israel nowadays and just to mean evil. It doesn't really mean anything historically in relation to what exists in South Africa. So it's linked to apartheid, racism, colonialism. So Israel, in the, the way they talk about it, has become a kind of symbol of evil rather than a normal nation state. But then also, and the two are very much linked together, then obviously, as you're well aware, there's a whole discussion of identity politics. And increasingly, uh, Jews are being cast as benefiting from uh, white privileged, hyper white, uh, in a hierarchical world, Jews have again come to symbolize a malign force in society as a whole. So I think at the same time, more recently, in fact, than the Israel thing, which I think has been going on since 1967, the Six Day War, in the last 10 years or so, kind of on top, superimposed on top of that, you have increasingly the idea of Jews as representing hyper-white privilege as a different kind of race of people. This idea of um, this manic hostility you talk about when it comes to Israel, you know, a lot of the complaint that people will have is that they can't criticize Israel without being accused of being anti-Semitic. Anti so, you know, what is the difference between legitimate criticism of, of a very controversial part of the world and the actions of one state? What's, where's the line there? And, and, and just sort of prejudice or something like that. Surely people can criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. Yeah, they, yeah, they can. I, I think the line, obviously, you know, we can discuss individual cases, but I think I've already outlined my approach in general, which is that if you criticize Israel by the same criteria, you would criticize any other nation state. Uh, so I'm not saying it's the same, but use broadly the same criteria, then that's fine. But if you uh, hold it up as this kind of immensely powerful malign force, I think that's something very, very different. Uh, and I think a lot of people go to you know, that side of the line. So it is possible to weaponize anti-Semitism. So what people like, I mean, in the British context, the Corbynistas sometimes talk about anti-Semitism being weaponized. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's true that the, uh, say the right wing of the Labour Party has kind of cynically used accus uh, accusations of anti-Semitism against the Corbyn Corbynistas. So I'm not saying that weaponization never exists because it does exist sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's a huge amount of anti-Semitism denial. So people will say, oh, no, I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just being anti-Israel. But they very clearly fit into this category of Israel as a symbol of apartheid, colonialism, imperialism, and so on. I mean, they would say it's because Israel is the, the perfect example of modern day colonialism. And it's harder to find a, as as good an example as that. Uh, well, I, I think that's a kind of strange uh, kind of argument. I mean, for a start, historically, uh, I, mean, I, I actually like uh, uh, most of your viewers have probably heard of Isaac Deutscher, 
you know, the great Polish Marxist uh, Jewish writer, uh, who famously wrote a collection of essays called The Non-Jewish Jew. And he gave what I thought was a very good analogy, which was of a man in a burning building, uh, jumping out of a window to save himself, landing on top of someone and breaking that, that person's limbs. And obviously that's, that's an example, of, it's an analogy clearly, but it's an example of a tragedy where neither party is really to blame, uh, but they have to work out how to reconcile each other. And I think that is quite a good analogy for the, in broad terms, for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because the impetus for most people to uh, go to Israel, to migrate to Israel, was because they didn't have much choice, because of anti-Semitism in Europe, mm. the Holocaust, or because of anti-Semitism in the Middle East. Uh, and obviously the Palestinians were not to blame uh, for those things. You know, the Palestinian, it would be completely insane to blame the Palestinians for the Holocaust, for example. So in broad terms, I would say you have these, this conflict between these two groups, which is a really, really tragic conflict. And it is true sometimes that if you look at the Zionist movement historically, occasionally they use the word colonialism in the, to describe themselves, not all the time, but sometimes. But I, I think it's a very kind of foolish approach just to say, oh, we just attach labels to things. You know, they, they had various institutions occasionally they called colonialism, colonialists or colonial, therefore they're colonialists. I think to really get to grips with the tragedy of the conflict, tragedy for the Jews, but also tragedy for the Palestinians, you have to see the kind of situation that they were in, just kind of labeling Israel colonial, colonialist. It's just, it minimizes the tragedy and it's a completely ahistorical kind of approach. Do you think sometimes the critique of Israel is a proxy less for anti-Semitism than uh, for critique of the United States, however misguided that might be? Yeah, I think sometimes there are parallels. I mean, obviously, the Iranian regime puts it in very graphic language. They talk about great Satan of the United States and little Satan of Israel. But uh, even people who don't use that kind of language, they see... Israel and the United States of, as examples of uh, institutions that uh, oppress uh, the, uh, the most vulnerable people in the world, the victims of the world, and they should purely be seen in those kinds of terms. Again, not in a kind of all-rounded, not understanding it in an all-rounded way, because clearly, I mean, as you well know yourself, but if you look at American history, you can see also all sorts of problems in terms of what America was engaged in within America and around the world. Uh, but that's not the entire story. There's also a story of, you know, democracy and freedom and economic growth. Uh, and I think we need to get to grips with the complexity of it, not just to say one side is all good or one side is all bad, but try and understand the, the whole question as a whole. Coming back to this idea of... Um white privilege and Jews as hyper-white. I was a bit surprised to hear the way that you're talking about it. It sounds like this is something that's it's quite explicit that you've come across. For me, I have noticed it in more subtle ways. So I'm, I'm, I'm a member of a listserv um, for you know the particular area that I've published in. And uh, I've noticed over the years that the commentary on this listserv, listserv uh, became 
increasingly dominated by this talk of white privilege and white people and so on to the point where it, it became so disturbing to me that I, I thought, you know, I could, I could copy paste th these emails. These are academics, right? Uh, and I put it in a word document, hit control F and replace white people with Jews. And you would have the most, you know, it would be, you know, it would fit in, in, you know, 1930s Germany and the way that people are sort of scapegoating, uh, an ethnic group for all problems is, you know, it didn't really work out well for us in the past. And yet people are sort of unashamedly doing this now. And so I, I have a tendency to think that while it's, it's, it's not explicit, but it is repeating some tropes from the socialism of fools. Uh, I, I do think that this sort of scapegoating of white people um, bears a lot of resemblance to that. But I think it's, I tended to think it's more implicit. So in what ways do you think it's more explicit? I mean, yeah, I, I do, I do agree with you. I think there are circles where it is quite explicit. I mean, if you go to Twitter, for example, and obviously Twitter is absolutely not a cross section of the general population, but if you look at what a lot of the kind of anti-Israel activists are saying, it is quite explicit sometimes in some quarters, and I think it's becoming increasingly explicit. Uh, at the same time, I think there is still a degree of taboo about explicit anti-Semitism. Obviously, the whole experience of the Holocaust made it unacceptable in polite circles to be explicitly anti-Semitic. Uh, but I think it's coming back. I mean, partly the, the, the whole anti-Israel thing, which we've already discussed, but it, it can... So as I said, I'm not saying everyone who criticizes Israel is anti-Semitic, but it can provide a cover for anti-Semites who want to frame their language in that way. Uh, and also, you mentioned a, a listserv. Uh, I'm not a member of this, but a friend of mine has been involved in anti-lockdown groups. Uh, and she says on the listservs that she subscribes to, there's a lot of stuff about conspiracy theories. So they're not just anti-lockdown, but they see some kind of, you know, giant conspiracy with big farm and so on, trying to uh, lock down society as part of this conspiracy. And she says a lot of these conspiracy theories are anti-Semitic, sometimes implicitly, sometimes more explicitly, because obviously anti-Semitism is often associated with conspiracy theories. So not all conspiracy theories are about Jews, but an awful lot of them are, and they do tend to move in that direction. I noticed this myself with um, the, I wrote an article for Unheard a few years, a few years, was it a year to, everything's blurring now but a while back i wrote an article for unheard about the truckers convoy and mm. uh i was very interested in it and i just wanted to kind of get to the bottom of what was happening there and what sort of narratives were circulating and i talked to as many people as as i could and i was quite disheartened to see that there was a lot of this going on a lot of these these conspiracy theories and i thought to myself you know there's no other narrative here you know how are you going to make sense of your discontent and how and the problems of the world? You had a few Looney Tunes who, <laughs> who were coming in and saying, well, I've got the answers for you. And if I had been there, I would have gone and I had to try to grab a mic and, and offer a different narrative. You know, there was no reason why you have there is no reason why these sorts of narratives need to capture so many people. But I think it fills a vacuum. I don't know if you had anything to say about that. No, I think that's a very important point. I mean, I think that if people feel disenfranchised, and often for good reason, because uh, mainstream political parties don't listen to what they're saying, 
then there's certainly a temptation to engage in conspiracy theories. I mean, I'm not saying it's inevitable. I'm not being completely deterministic about it. No. But when you feel your life is completely out of control, then there's certainly a temptation to move in that, that direction. And if you do move in that direction, then anti-Semitism is often part of that story. So people might not explicitly talk about Jews. They might talk about bankers and financiers and you know other kinds of things. Uh, but I think that that's part, probably part of the reason why uh, it seems to me anti-Semitism is increasing in contemporary society. I think this is part of the story on the left as well, that as m more materialist narratives have receded, you end up with, well, oh, it sounds kind of vaguely leftist to say bankers and greedy bankers pull the strings on the world or ultimately to blame for social problems. And that's kind of it struck me that this was part of the um, furore over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. If you looked at what the complaints were actually about, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of just people who had a real bad analysis. And they didn't seem to know that they were treading into that territory. Um, mm. And so I think it's the same thing across the political spectrum. It's just a sort of vacation, this sort of um, hollowing out of any kind of serious analysis of what's going on in society. And what fills that vacuum is this kind of simple narrative of evil people who pull the strings. Yeah, and often people who go along with that narrative think they're being really radical. Hmm. But as you say, there's no kind of real material understanding there. It's just dividing the world into good and evil people and seeing things in a very simplistic kind of way. That was that's my analysis now. But what do you see behind the persistence of this of these kinds of narratives in society? Is it just people not realizing it, being a bit naive? Uh, well, as I said, I, I think people, for rational reasons, feel a sense of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's up to us. When I say us, I mean you and me, but also people who think in broadly similar ways to try and challenge those narratives to say yes. People are often excluded from mainstream politics. There is a real problem, but the explanation is not a conspiratorial one. We've got to kind of move away from conspiracy mm. theories. So I would say, well, one thing I'm doing is trying to do that in the specific case of anti-Semitism, but obviously it does uh, spread more broadly than that as well. The website is called The Radicalism of Fools. And we're just, I've said the socialism of fools a few times, and we're kind of assuming knowledge of that. But could you give me, maybe for those who don't know, a bit of background on what the socialism of fools is and how perhaps it's easy to fall into that? Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a debate about who coined the term uh, socialism of fools. It's usually attributed to August Bebel, who was a German, like radical German social democratic leader in the late 19th century. And at the time, you had elements on the left, which he was opposing uh, by using this term, who were looking at the problems of capitalism, uh, you know, like, you know, unemployment and inequality and so on, and blaming it on the Jews. Uh, may, maybe just to kind of very quickly go into the, to the background of that. I mean, it seems to me that I mean, if you look at anti-Semitism emerging in the 19th century in Europe, Jews, because historically they had often played this kind of financial mediation role, uh, they were often associated with capitalism. So reactionaries, I think then it was, well, often the right, but sometimes the left, 
they would look at emerging capitalism and modernity, which emerged relatively late in, in Central Europe, in Germany, say compared to Britain or the Netherlands or somewhere, they would associate those problems of emergent capitalism with Jews. Uh, and what Bebel, this German social democratic leader was saying was, this is really stupid because the, the problem is capitalism as a social system. The problem is not Jews as people or Jews as the personifications of capitalism. What we need to do, we as socialists, because he was speaking as a radical socialist, is to see that it's, you know, it's the capitalist system that's the problem. It's not the Jewish people that uh, are the problem. So that's really the kind of origin of that, that term. I always think about how, you know, during the 1930s, when you had this sort of, um, obviously, the, the uh, hege hegemony of these kinds of ideas, you had a very organized socialist and communist movement that was capable of mocking it. You know, you could differentiate very clearly, you know, Trotsky's, you know, what is national socialism, or he mocks them for their zoological materialism and that sort of thing. And it's very clear, this is what these people stand for. And it's idiotic and stupid. <laughs> and this is what we stand for. And it is materialist and it is scientific. Now, agree with that or not, fine. But there was a, a clear movement that could differentiate these things. And what I worry about now is that there isn't that. So how is it possible to push back against some of these, what I think is kind of anti-Semitism in, in a wide variety of guises, in the guise of economic critique, in the guise of sort of white privilege critique, this sort of thing. How do we push back against that if there's no coherent movement in society? Um, maybe I'm asking too much, <laughs> but I, I kind of wonder what, you know, I, I do, I try to podcast, you know, that seems so limited. Well, I would question your premise. I mean, I do understand what you're saying, that there was a kind of mass left-wing movement if you're going back to the 1930s. And now in the 21st century, there's not. And, and yeah, we, we should discuss that. But from what I can see historically, and Trotsky arguably was an honourable exception, the left didn't take anti-Semitism very seriously. Even if they were aware of it, they really kind of played it down and underestimated its importance. Uh, and one of the things I've been reading, which has kind of influenced my thinking on this, is Hannah Arendt's uh, Origins of Totalitarianism. You know, Hannah Arendt, as you know, the kind of great uh, mid-20th century German, Jewish, American uh, thinker. And one of the things that is not noticed about the origins of totalitarianism when people discuss it is that she argues that the Jewish question was the catalyst for the main tragedies of the 20th century. So she doesn't say the cause, but she argues that if you look at Nazism, and, and her focus really is Nazism, but Nazism and Stalinism, uh, then the whole kind of unraveling of the Jewish question was the uh, catalyst for totalitarianism to emerge. Uh, and it's, it seems to me, yeah, we can, uh, debate whether we, she goes too far but generally speaking I think even at the time in the early 20th century people didn't take anti-semitism very seriously and in a way we, we have some kind of commonality now because even when people discuss the holocaust today or even when it, or maybe particularly when it's taught in schools the whole kind of anti-semitic element of it is played down 
it's, it's discussed more as a kind of general human tragedy. Yes, Jews suffered, but anti-Semitism wasn't necessarily uh, the main focus. Maybe it was a kind of incidental fact uh, that the, the, the Jews suffered. So it, it, I think for a long time, anti-Semitism has been played down and misunderstood. Although I do take your point that the, the conditions now are very different politically from the early, say, the first part of the 20th century. I mean, obviously, Marx's essays on the Jewish question are the elephant in the room here. Um, I, I, I want to ask you more about Hannah Arendt, but I wonder what you thought about that. Do you think that this was a, a, an early kind of failure or is this a total misrepresentation? Is there a legacy of that? Uh, I, think it, I think it's a much maligned uh, essay. In fact, I think it's a very kind of uh, pertinent and relevant essay, although we've got to remember that anti-Semitism as a kind of modern racial force, as opposed to uh, religious Jew hatred, was only really just beginning to emerge as Marx was writing. Uh, and it's absolutely true. If you just take passages out of uh, On the Jewish Question by Marx and just read them out today, you can say, oh, this is completely horrendous, terrible, awful anti-Semitism. Uh, but that's a completely ahistorical approach. I mean, for a start, Marx was arguing for uh, political emancipation for the Jews uh, and, so, and also social emancipation for the Jews. And what Marx was really trying to get to grips with was the fact that Jews were coming, as I mentioned earlier, they were coming to symbolize modernity and emerging capitalism uh, because Jews played this financial role, particularly now we're talking about Germany and Central Europe. Uh, Germany was making this transition to becoming a more modern capitalist society. And the reactionary section of German society was already beginning to react against Jews and Jews blaming Jews for the problems of modernity. So I think Marx is actually very prescient in trying to grapple with those questions. But the vast majority of commentators just take these quotes out of context and see them as this kind of complete bigoted anti-Semites, which I, I think is actually not true. Going back to Hannah Arendt, um, so you said that um, this unraveling of the Jewish, Jewish question was the catalyst for the main tragedies of the 20th century. I'm not sure I quite understood how. So how does she argue that, I mean, in obvious ways, yes, but I, when it comes to sort of Stalinism and so on, um, how, does, how do these things fit together? Uh, yeah, I think she's less more, more clear on Nazism than Stalinism in relation to this. But although there, there is a kind of Stalinist tradition of anti-Semitism as well. But I think I'm still trying to get my I've read the book twice. I'm still trying to get my head around the argument. But I think what she's arguing relates to this whole question of the symbolic character of anti-Semitism. In other words, as I've said, they sim I mean Jews have symbolized different things at different times, but if we're talking about from the latter part of the 19th century through until the middle of the 20th century. It was Jews symbolizing modernity and capitalism and then different social forces, including most clearly the Nazis, reacting against that and trying to. And, and that's so she makes it. She argues very clearly they weren't scapegoating the Jews, the Nazis. It wasn't that they, in other words, they weren't thinking cynically, oh, we've got to get the uh, we've got to get the working class on our side. I mean, this is how some people argue it. I'm not, not suggesting you would clearly, obviously, argue it in this way, but people do argue uh, 
the Nazis were scapegoating the Jews. So they're saying, we want to get Germans on our side. We want to get the working class on our side. Therefore, we'll blame the Jews and they'll come to our side. She says, no, it wasn't about scapegoating. Uh, they really did perceive the Jews to be the personal embodiment of these problems that were plaguing German society. In other words, the kind of downside of capitalism and modernity. And I think what she's arguing is that this kind of set off a lot of the process of the rise of uh, Nazism. Uh, and even if you read, I, I read a book recently about the really early years of the Nazi party in Munich, which is a big center for the, uh, for the Nazis, not Berlin, but Munich in the aftermath of the First World War. It's very clear there already that Hitler and the emerging Nazi party, uh, in their minds, they kind of put capitalism and Jews together. And they're kind of trying to deal with uh, both of those things together as part of the same problem. They're not scapegoating Jews. They hate Jews and they kill Jews. They slaughter Jews. But it's not about scapegoating. They kind of genuinely perceive societies working in that way. So I suppose if you go back to the origins of scapegoating, I think spiritually probably people genuinely believed that the animal that they projected all of their sins onto and then drove off a cliff really did hold the sins <laughs> of the society. Um, but you mentioned uh, that anti-Semitism tends to be played down when people learn about it in school. I think some people might find that um, difficult to understand. Um, certainly when I learned about the Holocaust, I definitely learned about, you know, this was 30 years ago now, but I definitely learned about the horrors of anti-Semitism to the extent that I was surprised to learn later that there were different groups involved as well. Um, and I think maybe... For ch children, you know, it might be easier to explain prejudice, this sort of thing, than eugenics. Um, so how have things shifted? How have things, in, in what ways is anti-Semitism played down? Is it just that they bring, they emphasize now too much the different groups that were involved? They emphasize too much the eugenic aspects? How has it changed? Well, I mean, but yeah, sticking to the education debate to begin with, which I think is very important. So clearly when people are taught about it in schools, they are taught that six million Jews were killed. Uh, and then they're generally taught nowadays, uh, you know, it's also mentioned that the Sinti and the Roma were also victims. But in terms of the driving force for it, it's often not really seen primarily as being anti-Semitism. It's more a question of... Uh, well, often because the people, you know, they're teaching young kids, often the, the tutors don't have any uh, or very little understanding of history, let alone the kids. So maybe the most grotesque example, for example, is the kind of discussion about Anne Frank and Anne Frank's diary. And this is absolutely not a criticism of Anne Frank at all. It's a question of, it's the way that it's interpreted. Uh, and the line that's taken out, I forget the, the exact wording now, it's something like, uh, this is quoting Anne Frank or paraphrasing it's something like at heart I learned that people are basically good so the way that it's taught to people is that it's just an example of people being bad to each other and even in schools you know they they use Anne Frank very often to talk about bullying so it becomes completely wrenched out of its historical context and it just becomes about uh 
people can be bad to each other. Or Whoopi Goldberg talked about it in a TV interview. You know, it was kind of white on white violence. That's another example of that. Or it's just an example of people being bad, doing bad things to each other. So they don't deny people were killed or the bad things were hap happened. But they tend to play down the fact that anti-Semitism itself was a kind of driving force and was a key element of, uh, of Western thought leading up to the, to the Holocaust. And do you, some of the things that I mentioned around different groups, do you tend, do you see this, this tendency to emphasize all the different groups on like Holocaust Memorial Days as, as a sort of the pendulum swinging too far? Or is this irrelevant to the argument that you're making? Uh, no, I mean, obviously, we've got to get the balance right. It's factually true that a lot of Sinti and Roma were slaughtered in the Holocaust, and that should be recognized and acknowledged. Uh, but that doesn't mean that anti-Semitism wasn't a big driving force uh, behind the Holocaust. And now it's got even more, it's got really ridiculous, where you get in the, the German Bundestag, the German parliament, they've literally had debates where they've started talking about trans victims of the Holocaust, which is completely absurd because obviously trans uh, wasn't recognized as a category in the way that we discuss it today. And yet you've got the German uh, parliament kind of uh, retrospectively talking about how trans people suffered and were killed uh, in the Holocaust. And for me, that's, that is a way of also rewriting the Holocaust and not understanding what was going on. So that, that, maybe that's an extreme example, but I think in many, many, many ways, the discussion of the Holocaust is very distorted nowadays. Although one of the, if you go through the sort of history of the trans movement, not to derail the discussion or anything, but one of the earliest um, clinics was shut down by the Nazis, which is, I assume that's probably what people are, are referencing, that some of the very earliest kind of studies were done in Germany, the first sex changes, that sort of thing. But it was nothing like it is today, nothing like the um, amount of people. But this becomes something, you know, that people will, will begin to emphasize. Uh, I think you're right. People have made that point in response to what I argued when I, when I wrote my article about the, the trans thing. I think it, it's true that, uh, like you said, there was kind of German scientific research going on before the Second World War in relation to, to trans people. And of course, any trans people that were killed, that would be completely uh, outrageous. But first of all, as you said, the debate then was very different from the debate now, where you, know, you can just subjectively identify as a member of a different sex. Uh, so it's very, very different. And it's, but also, it wasn't really recognized as a category. So the Nazis specifically saw Jews as a category. And they were very centrally motivated on slaughtering Jewish people. They didn't just kill Jews incidentally. Their goal was to sl systematically slaughter all Jews in Europe. So the, the kind of ridiculous retrospective comparison with trans, uh, it's just, it wouldn't be recognized as a category. And that's certainly what the Nazis, not what the Nazis were doing uh, during the Second World War. One of the articles that you have on your your website, Radicalism of Fools, um, is how Germany is worsening anti-Semitism, which um, given that this is a, a, a big a sort of soft spot for uh, Germany, um, it's, a, it's a big claim to make. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that, the specific context of that is that since I think around about 2018, certainly only in the last few years, 
Germany has set up this system of anti-Semitism anti commissioners, they call. So there's a kind of national anti-Semitism commissioner, someone called Felix Klein, who's been in the position for since 2018, I think, since this was founded. And then each German federal state also has an anti-Semitism commissioner. Uh, so the, the specific context of what I was writing about was that uh, th this guy, Felix Klein, the federal anti-Semitism commissioner, was trying to use the charge of anti-Semitism to discredit the AFD, the, the uh, Alternative for Deutschland, the uh, Alternative for Germany, the kind of German populist, right-wing populist party, uh, basically trying trying to discredit them. But I, I think I thought think that's problematic because, and it relates to the discussion we were having before that what you have in Germany is that the mainstream parties. The, uh, the Christian Democrats, the Social Democrats, the, the Greens. Uh, yeah, they're the main one, the, the federal the Free Democrats are basically trying to exclude the AFD from politics. Uh, the AFD are growing because, and they're doing pretty well in the polls, they've got over 20% of the uh, support in, the, in the, the opinion polls. They're growing because the mainstream parties are not responding to the needs of ordinary people very often. So, for example, they're imposing these very harsh green policies, uh, you know, trying to put, put pressure on people to introduce heat pumps, pushing up energy prices to a huge extent. So, the, so it's quite a complicated picture, but the AFD is growing and is doing electorally well because people are very pissed off with the mainstream parties. The mainstream parties are trying to exclude the AFD from mainstream political debate. And then you have a government official coming in and trying to use anti-Semitism to discredit the AFD. And it seems to me that that is just likely to create more anger and resentment among the ordinary people who support the AFD because their needs are not being met and then they're being accused of anti-Semitism. And there are some elements of anti-Semitism within the AFD, but it's not their platform. Uh, and it's a minority of people. And anyway, it's a very cynical, I think it's very, very cynical when you have a government official trying to discredit a electorally popular party uh, by accusing them of anti-Semitism in that way. The AFD is used as an example of a resurgence of the far right and far right anti-Semitism. Um, and so how can we be sure that this isn't the case? Um, you know, is there is it just because people are just sort of upset with those in power so they want to stick it to them and that's just it or do you think there is a kind of anti-semitism that exists in everyday people that the afd might be speaking to because i mean they are associated with anti-semitism regardless of what how how deep you think that goes just playing devil's advocate here <laughs> yeah well no but as i said it's important to get the uh balance right i think there are some nasty people in the afd uh, including Holocaust deniers, uh, although it's not on their official platform. Uh, but at the same time, it's true that uh, people, so now we're not mainly talking about members of the AFT, we're talking about why people are voting for them or saying they'll vote for them. People are very, very pissed off with the mainstream parties. And they have good reason to be pissed off with the mainstream parties. I mean, this relates a bit to maybe what we'll discuss later on if we have time about 
uh, you know, how people's uh, incomes are being squeezed and uh, they're suffering as a result of economic dislocation. The mainstream parties are not responding to people's needs. And I think that's the main reason the AFD is doing well. Uh, and so what I was essentially arguing was that the mainstream parties should be listening to ordinary people and what they want, rather than using a kind of government official to try and discredit them and basically accuse all AFD members and supporters of being anti-Semitic, which is not the case. Another reason why people have sort of tended toward these populist parties or these fringe kind of candidates is because they're the only option for uh, opposition to the war, that they're the only ones who don't want to sort of push things further and escalate. I can well see how, you know, with the main parties pushing for more escalation, people who are afraid of war on European soil might look for any option that might get them out of that. Yeah, I'm not claiming to be an expert in German politics, but I think also yeah. the Linke, the left party in Germany, I think is also quite cynical of the war, whereas the more mainstream parties like the CDU and the SDP are more kind of uh, more kind of into the war, uh, supporting the war in that respect. I was just thinking of sort of a lot of the when these things kind of rise up, it's like, oh, you know, the masses left to their own devices will you know, this is the outcome of democracy. See, we told you so, instead of trying to understand kind of the nitty gritty of what might be going on there. Um, but in terms of um, earlier, you were speaking about uh, Hannah Arendt. And one of the things that Arendt wrote that has always been a difficulty for me is this idea that um, one of the drivers of the horrors of the 20th century was this notion that everything is possible, that everything that exists is simply an impediment that can be removed on the quest for, you know, some notion of progress. And now you've written uh, a, quite a lot about progress and economic progress and growth and so on. And that kind of runs up and, and so have I, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and yet I feel like maybe there's something to that you know maybe there's some that when everything becomes an impediment well then you know maybe just throw this group aside they're in the way you know the, the road to progress you know who cares if a few people get trampled over <laughs> um do you think that being sort of pro-growth and pro-progress can lead you to being vulnerable to that kind of criticism or or that pathway in the future uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I suppose I would say... Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.